Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Great Rant and Hanover Research Podcast. Every month, we answer follow-up questions and chat on topics from our monthly webinar series. Folks who attend or listen to those monthly webinars will have the opportunity to send additional questions to podcast at HanoverResearch.com for us to tackle here on this podcast. I'm Mallory Waters. I'm a grants advisor here at Hanover, um, and I'm chatting today with senior grants consultant Brian DeBosk. Hi, Brian. Hi, Mallory. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, This month, our webinar was on uh, keys to a competitive NSF major research instrumentation proposal. And we just got off that webinar, Brian. (laughs) Um, So uh, unfortunately, we we don't have time to take uh, additional questions for folks who might be sending them to podcast. Uh, We won't be answering them on this podcast. But if you do have additional questions coming out of that webinar, or as you're preparing your own NSF MRI proposal, feel free to continue to to send them um, along because Brian's going to be joining us on our next podcast as well, which is on NSFS STEM. So we'll be chatting with Brian here uh, now and then again next month too. Um, So thanks again, Brian. I'm sure you're getting tired of uh, talking about uh, NSF MRI now. (laughs) Never, never. Um, So we'll be playing it a little bit fast and loose here today. Um, I'm once again um, down a colleague, uh, Katie Bristow, um, my co-host. She is currently moving, um, and so I'm sure she would rather be here than packing and uh, sorting through boxes. Um, But we wanted to go ahead and cover this podcast and get the podcast out to everyone because we know the NSF uh, MRI deadline's coming up. Uh, Brian, that's in January, correct? That's correct. Uh, January 1st through January 19th is the window. Okay, great. Well, let's go ahead and jump right into it. Uh, We had some great uh, questions that came out of the webinar and just some general thoughts that I had. Let's just start um, with talking a little bit more about NSF MRI. Why is this not a program for someone, um, let's say that we have a PI at a research institution who just wants, who just really wants to buy a really big microscope for their, for their research. This is not the program for that. Can you, can you, can, can you tell us a little bit more why? Yeah, there are a couple of reasons. So the the first is that uh, faculty at, at major research institutions often have um, a big startup package where they can purchase that kind of equipment on their own, or those major research institutions often have a microscopy core where everyone has access in some way to uh, the type of microscope that that individual might need. And then finally, if it's just for their own personal use, then it doesn't fit with MRI's uh, desire to fund multi-user equipment. Uh, this, This idea that when they make an investment, they want it to touch multiple people. And when you say multi-user, I know you're talking a little bit about, you know, different departments at the institution, but could that also include different community members, different uh, perhaps nonprofits that aren't necessarily institutions of higher education within the community? Definitely. And even the the eligibility uh, includes an opportunity for non-degree granting institutions uh, to participate. So if there are people in a community or an area that participate in the types of research that might use this piece of equipment, it's always an advantage for an institution to reach out and say, hey, does anyone else have a need for this instrument? Can we include you in this project as a way of saying, here are the broader impacts of making this available at our institution. Here's the broad range of other people who might make use of this. Great. When it comes to determining, so let's say that they're in that situation and you have multiple users in the community, how do you know who should be the primary applicant? 
Ah, uh, yeah, that's always a challenge. Um, one of the ways that we recommend that you make that determination is um, MRI distinguishes between primary users and minor users. So primary users are those um, who are involved in the planning to acquire this instrument. They have clear research objectives and goals that require this instrument uh, that are currently, as of now, being a barrier uh, to getting that research done. And they can describe what those research projects are and what those impacts would be of this instrumentation. Minor users are those who have um, might have a need for this at some point in the future, or they are doing research where it's not uncommon for this type of instrument to be used, but they don't have a specific project in mind at the moment, and they might use it in the future. Um, the lead applicant should usually be the one with the most primary users. That's usually the easiest way uh, to identify who that should be. But there are some special circumstances where um, another institution might be, say, for example, if it's a development proposal instead of acquisition, where um, a group is developing a piece of equipment, it might be the institution that actually has more of the expertise needed to build that instrument rather than necessarily the one with more of the primary users. Great. You talked a little bit uh, during the webinar about uh, the budgets for these different uh, tracks. So you have the track one, which is the acquisition, and then the track two, which is the development. Um, is there a cost share? So you, so you mentioned cost share, 30%. Um, and you were very clear that it's a flat 30%, no less, no more. Um, is there a cost share uh, limitation in terms of, you know, what does that look like? Is that, is that cash? Does that have to be cash? Um, and why does NSF have this cost share? Because it's not something that we see frequently or very often with these uh, with these NSF proposals. But when it comes to MRI, there is a cost share requirement. Is that because NSF just wants the institution to have skin in the game when it comes to these larger equipment uh, sort of purchases? Sure. So it, it's a few things. Um, so on, on the first part, um, uh, it's important to note that the cost share is required for PhD granting institutions and non-degree granting institutions. They're required to do 30% cost share. But institutions that don't grant PhDs um, don't have any cost share requirement and they can't include any. And so that's an important distinction. And that kind of hints at why NSF requires cost share. So PhD granting institutions and those non-degree granting institutions tend to be those that have more research infrastructure. They have um, more money coming in from uh, NSF and other sources. They have indirect costs that are often redirected into uh, supporting some of these shared resources. And NSF is basically saying, you need to cough up some of that money to support this investment that we're making at your institution because not only are we um, having an impact on how these people might use NSF dollars, there's a lot of other opportunities for people to use this equipment that are going to enhance your institution's ability to do research, your institution's ability to bring in funding from other sources. And so that 30% is a signal of, of that commitment 
uh, on, on behalf of the institution. And it's also a reminder that the institution can't rely on NSF in the future for additional support on this instrument. Um, they're making a commitment, uh, both up front with cost share and long term for maintenance and sustainability. So when we're talking about cost share, and I'm going to dive into this a little bit only because I know we got uh, several questions during the webinar about the budget and Mm -hmm. not necessarily cost share, but I think, you know, with something like NSF MRI, the budget is um, a huge component uh, to this grant. And uh, there's a lot of questions about the specificity here. Um, So when we're talking about that 30% cost share, is it something that they can, that a institution that is required uh, to have that 30% cost share can they say that the cost share is going to come in the form of supporting the research activities that are going to come out of this equipment? Or does it have to be something specific to the actual development or the purchase of this equipment? Yeah, that's the perfect question. Um, can it be uh, part of those research activities? And the answer is is no. It has to actually be um, cost share related to the purchase of the equipment the installation of the equipment, the um, the maintenance of the equipment, the training uh, for using the equipment, the the technicians who might be supporting use of the equipment. Basically, cost share has to be directly related to the equipment itself, and not any of the outcomes that might be generated with that equipment. And I think in your uh, your original question, you ask about, can it be cash? Does it need to be other things? Um, there's a long list in the solicitation of things that can be included. Um, and it, it's pretty broad. So um, cash, time, um, there are, are some other things that may be related to where the equipment is housed. Um, it could be some of that technician capacity. So there are multiple ways for an institution to come up with that cost share. It doesn't have to be 30% in cash. Okay, so some good news there. So no, you can't use it for the research activities or you can't use research activities for the cost share, but there is flexibility when it comes to how NSF is going to accept that cost share as long as it's related to the equipment purchase, development, or the installation. Definitely, that's right. Okay, okay. Great. Um, I want to back up a little bit. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, so NSF MRI is a limited submission um, solicitation, which means that you can only have three uh, proposals from any given institution. And I think you dived into this uh, really well on the webinar about what those limitations are. So let's cover that once more. So um, can you walk us through what those three can look like and what it means if you're um, a sub or, you know, collaborating on on another institution's MRI and how that factors in here? Sure. So um, you can, as an institution, you can submit, like you said, up to three proposals. Um, at most, two of those can be track one. And as a reminder, track one is between 100000 and a penny less than a million dollars. Um, <laughs> and one proposal can be track two. And so that means if you're going to propose three projects, two of them have to be track one and one of them has to be track two. Obviously, if you're doing two, you could either do two track ones or a track one and a track two. If you're only doing one, either one's your choice. Um, the point about the sub awards is important because especially for applicants who are proposing development 
uh, awards where they're actually developing a piece of equipment. Many of those projects require contributions from other organizations. So those are oftentimes multi-institutional awards, although there are some acquisition awards that might have uh, multiple institutions as well. But in any of those cases, if there's a sub-awardee and they have more than 20% of the total project budget allocated to them, then that counts as one of their submissions. So if they're doing a track two development award for $2 million and um, a sub-awardee has $425,000 allocated to them, that's above 20% of the budget, that counts as their institution's track two proposal. And so that institution can only propose two track ones um, as part of their limit of three. Okay. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. <laughs> I think uh, that's uh, that's probably one of those fine line things that not a lot of folks may pick up on when they read the actual um, solicitation. Um, so thanks for clarifying that. So when an institution um, is doing a down select, and I'm using down select because that's just the terminology that my clients use, but what I'm speaking about here is there's some sort of internal process where the faculty submit uh, to the institution their plans for NSF MRI, and then the institution selects uh, from those which ones are going to be allowed to actually submit to NSF. What are some key things that the institution should be looking at in these internal proposals as they're deciding who should go on to um, actually submit to NSF MRI? Oh, now we're giving away trade secrets since that's some <laughs> of what we do. Um, so when when I'm looking at those applications within an institution, I think I mentioned on the webinar, there might be a situation where six different teams want to apply for MRI and the institution has to pick three. Um, some of that is made easy. If there's only one track two proposal out of all of those, then the institution should let that team go ahead and apply. But most of the time, it's more, compli more complicated than that. Um, you have multiple teams vying for multiple tracks, and you have to make a decision. So um, we encourage our clients to look at that in terms of um, some things that we can't assess, which are how likely is this team to actually pull together a proposal? Because internally, everyone knows which faculty are um, more likely to follow through on those types of commitments, which faculty teams work well together. Um, and so they have a sense, this team, if we give them one of these slots, there's a 70% chance that they follow through and a 30% chance they don't. It might be better to give that slot to a slightly less competitive team that's at 90% chance of submission um, so that the institution doesn't miss out on that opportunity. Um, but aside from those sorts of logistical questions, um, what are we looking for in terms of, of most competitive? Um, I think I mentioned in the webinar that for acquisition, one of the most important pieces is how compelling is that research that the primary users are proposing? And how big is this barrier um, that the lack of shared access to this equipment is causing? If the institution has five members of a team that are all high-powered researchers, and they're telling them, hey, we've, we're on the cusp of these great 
discoveries, but we're missing this piece of equipment. Or um, we're having to travel two weeks out of the year to go use this equipment somewhere else. That would often be a high priority project. If, on the other hand, you have uh, a group of, say, four applicants from one department, they're all early career, um, they they don't have a history of, of funding from any agencies, NSF or otherwise, um, they don't have a great publication record, and they're saying they need this shared piece of equipment, but don't have a really great case for how it would affect their um, their long-term research, that's a lower priority project. And certainly, um, there's an opportunity for capacity building among early career faculty. But in many cases, MRI is not the place to do that. Um, And so you might have a case where you have a few high-powered, well-experienced researchers, and you bring in an early career researcher to kind of tag along in that process and present, hey, here's a compelling research need um, and giving this access would be valuable. Uh, that's that's probably a better way to use MRI in this particular case. And then when it comes to development projects, um, someone really needs to assess the team's claims around whether or not this instrumentation is truly innovative. Um, many teams have innovative ideas And they have, um, because they're committed to the project, they will um, advocate for that in certain ways that someone needs to review the same way a grant reviewer would with a bit of skepticism, coming to that and saying, how can I poke holes in this? Um, Are there cases where reviewers are going to come back and say, oh, yeah, there's not an instrument on the market that does what you're asking for, but purchasing these other two instruments Um, and combining them will cost less money and be faster solution. Um, If that's the case, then those kinds of development proposals are lower priority. So I think the picture I'm painting here is there's no one size fits all to to selecting selecting groups or down selecting, as you say. Um, But there are some, some guideposts around competitiveness of the research ideas and um, innovation or compellingness of the request for the instrument itself. Great. Thanks. That brings up a lot more questions. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) which, uh, you know, if you have specific questions about your institution's, you know, down select process and questions about that, uh, reach out to Hanover. This is, you know, as Brian said, uh, we're kind of delving into some of the trade secrets here, but, you know, it really is based on your own institution. Um, But I want to hone in on something that you said, and you uh, said, you know, if there's only one development proposal, you should let them submit so that you don't miss that opportunity. Um, And it made me think a little bit about some of the guidance that we uh, provide around other proposals. So other more research-based proposals, which are investigator initiated and the decision of whether to submit something that you know is not going to be competitive versus not submitting because you know, it's not competitive um, and you don't want to damage your, you know, reputation or relationships that you have with uh, NSF. So I guess my question is, does NSF MRI operate in the same way? So let's say an institution has uh, three proposals. They're going to maximize their opportunity. 
But they get to that final stage and they know that, you know, despite their best efforts, one of these research teams just hasn't really pulled together a very strong case for, you know, track one, let's say. Just mm-hmm. just a random example. Should they go ahead and let that team submit with the hopes of getting proposal feedback and potentially resubmitting? Or is it something where if you if you truly know that this is not going to be competitive, then it's just not even worth submitting? Yeah, that's a good question. And let me correct something I, I may have misspoken on. Um, if if an institution has um, is in this down-select process and they only have one track two proposal, that's the case where they should let them go ahead and submit because that's one of their three options. Um, if it were development, I think I would still make the comparative across projects um, to see um, since that doesn't limit their submissions. But the, the question you're, you're asking, I think, is important in terms of um, do we submit if it's garbage? Uh, <laughs> and, That's a much more honest way of putting it than I did, but much more to the point. <laughs> and so um, to your point, I, I think underlying your question there was um, that, that, that reputational piece um, which is critical when we're talking about investigator initiated research proposals where all the people on uh, a review panel or individual reviewers are in an individual's field they are making assumptions and also making judgments about that individual's um, current and future research prospects based on what they're seeing in an application. And that is absolutely 100% a case where we would always recommend, hey, if it's a really bad proposal, take a step back, spend the time to make it better, uh, put something in that is... Okay, let's dive into um, some questions about common mistakes that lead to proposals not being funded. Um, so you went through a lot of uh um, reasons at the end why there's administrative withdrawal. Um, but let's talk about um, some of the biggest mistakes that uh, faculty make when they're putting together these NSF MRIs and why they're not funded. So technically, they meet all of the requirements, but they're not funded. What are they? What do you see as someone who's looked at dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of these NSF MRI proposals? What do you see as you know some of the big mistakes that you know people make? Yeah. So when when I approach Um, a new MRI with a team, I emphasize in an acquisition proposal two key pieces that I think most applicants um, don't do well and that often lead to poor reviews. And the first is um, they describe run-of-the-mill research um, that isn't exciting or is just a continuation of what they're working on and don't make a compelling case for why the instrument is essential um, to doing something better. And so um, if a team comes and they say, here are the the projects we're working on, my question is, um, I want to see the projects you're not working on because you don't have the instrument that you need to do it. What, What are the things that you can't do that you would love to do, the questions you would like to ask but can't because you lack this instrument, that's what NSF is going to be interested in. That's what the researchers want to see. Um, And then the the second piece is um, 
whether or not they've given thought to that user allocation. So I would say about 80% of the summary statements that we receive back mention the allocation of instrument use, that teams have not spent enough time thinking about the actual allocation of usage. And um, this is problematic because you have primary users, you have minor users, you have educational uses, sometimes you have industry users or other institutions, and all of these are competing needs for that instrument time. And if the team hasn't thought carefully through the process of allocating that time and how much time is going to be needed for each of those user groups and the policies around uh, prioritization, then um, this instrument may actually sit idle for a large period of the time and create its own barriers to access. Um, A couple of years ago, we had uh, a proposal where the team had identified how much time the primary users needed. They had identified how much time the educational users were going to need, minor users and some other users. And it totaled up to more than 100% of the year. And so not only was there not enough time for Uh, the users themselves, um, there wasn't time for maintenance. There wasn't time for training. (laughs) There wasn't time for anything. And and reviewers quickly pointed that out. And I think in the webinar, I mentioned that including a table or a figure that shows that allocation of time is a simple way to help make sure you don't make that mistake. Um, you, You can see how much time does this add up to? Um, is there any additional capacity to grow into? So I think those are the main things, uh, main common mistakes on acquisition and on development. Um, there are a lot of mistakes that happen on development. Um, <laughs> I think the the most common one, though, and the one that um, causes uh, the greatest concern is not including everyone with the right skills to get the work done leaving some things uh, to the imagination of the reviewers or just making some assumptions. And reviewers are very good at picking out those specific things because someone who's reading it has gone through a similar process and they've made that mistake and they're going to point it out and say, hey, you haven't considered that you actually need to include this person. Um, and so that that's probably the most common mistake we see there. In addition to ambitious plans, you know, the timelines often are um, too ambitious to actually accomplish the work in the amount of time proposed. But that's easy to address. You extend the time uh, and, and give a more realistic timeline. Um, so what are the time limitations, Brian, for a track one and a track two? So if they need to extend the time, what are the what are the limits? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, it's actually divided by acquisition and development rather than tracks. And so acquisition proposals can be up to three years and development proposals can be up to five years. Um, Most acquisition proposals that we see are one year in duration, although some people propose up to three years so that they can use a portion of the budget for additional maintenance, personnel, training, those sorts of things. And that's a a good place to remind people a minimum of 70% of the budget for 
an acquisition proposal has to actually be used in purchasing the equipment and the other 30% can be used for these other things. Um, but NSF says that the average amount spent on the equipment itself is much higher than 70%. And so you probably want to be higher as well. Um, but on the development side of things, there are no such uh, limitations. And so um, five years is the limit. Most of those are typically in the three-year range. And so if the plan looks ambitious, extend it out. And if if you run beyond five years, ask for a no-cost extension and get that sixth year uh, at the end of that time to try to finish up. Okay, great. And thanks for catching that. I think um, earlier in the podcast, I think you said, oh, let me just correct something that I said. But I think it's actually me who keeps on confusing <laughs> tracks and then uh, acquisition versus development. So so please do catch that every time I um, mix those up because they are very, very different things. Um, let's talk a little bit about the NSF MRI outline, the required outline. Um, because I know I'm going to get questions on this. I know you're going to get questions on this. I know you're going to see drafts come in that do not follow the required uh, outline. Um, so you were very clear that the heading should not be changed. The order should not be changed. Um, is this something that a proposal, if they do change it, if they add subheadings that maybe aren't included in the required outline, um, is this something that it's going to be, you know, just kind of yanked from the process? Is it, you know, one of those um, mistakes that causes the proposal to be returned without actually uh, having any comments on it? Or is it something that is uh, just going to really irk everybody who uh, sees it, but they're still going to go through the process? The question is, it, or the answer is, it depends. Um, so the top five headings A through E are all required. Um, my guess is you could get away with modifying those words slightly, as long as all five of those are in place and essentially the same thing. Um, you can't put them out of order. That's going to cause problems. Um, but I, I'm, I always tell clients, I don't know why you would change it. Um, it's the words that reviewers are looking for use the exact language from the, the solicitation. As for subsections, the only one that has a required subsection outline is section A, and that's the instrument location and the description of the instrument type. And those are straightforward. All the other subsections in the webinar that we presented and that we use in our template are the ones that we have come up with to help clients structure what's requested by um, NSF. And so in section B, we have four different sections and we describe what should be in each of those. And under one of those, we have even additional subsections in the description of the research for each faculty member. In section E, we have four subsections for the management plan for acquisition and eight subsections for development. And that's because each of those correspond to specific categories of information that NSF is telling reviewers to look for. And so our recommendation is follow our template and you're not going to leave anything out. Um, the reality is, as long as you get those five major headlines in place, um, you're probably not going to um, risk withdrawal um, with the exception of prior support. That has to be included somewhere. It's uh, NSF says put it in section B. 
And if you don't include a subheading, many reviewers will miss it, even if it's there. Um, but that is one of the sections that program officers check to determine whether or not it should be withdrawn before they even send it out to reviewers. So um, the short answer is, uh, yes, follow the, the outline and um, follow our recommended outline if you want to make sure everything that's required is included. Yes. And if you're going to be sending your proposal to us for someone like Brian to look at, follow the outline, make his life easier. <laughs> please, please do. <laughs> um, so this raises another question that came up actually as part of the questions asked during the webinar, but it's the section on intellectual merit or rather the lack of a section there. Um, this is something that has been removed as a requirement from, I believe, most NSF proposals now in terms of it being a standalone section. So you don't have to have that standalone header that says intellectual merit, but rather they want you to incorporate it throughout the um, proposal. So is this something where if um, somebody on this proposal includes that as, you know, perhaps a subheader, is that going to raise red flags or what's the benefit to including it, even though it's not a required element anymore in terms of a subheading or, you know, a heading? Um, what's the benefit to having it there or what's the, you know, potential backfiring that can happen if you include it there? Does that signal to NSF that, hey, I'm not really keeping up with the PAPPG changes? Yeah, so that's that's a question that requires some some careful clarification here because, like you mentioned, um, it's not required in most programs across NSF these days, and it's even not extremely clear in the MRI solicitation. However, when you look at the checklist um, and the criteria by which reviewers will assess the application, in both places it indicates that we are supposed to address intellectual merit and broader impacts under separate headings within the proposal. This is probably a holdover from before NSF made that change in the PAPPG because most of the programs um, that now require an intellectual merit heading, which there are only a few, a handful, um, most of them are very explicit. This is um, in contrast to the PAPPG, which says that it's no longer required. Um, in this particular case, I think it's a holdover from before that change. But because it says under separate headings, um, we include a separate heading in our outline uh, in Section B. And we think that you should include it um, because the risk of not including it, if you have a program officer who says, hey, it says have a heading and you don't have a heading, it's coming back to you without review. Um, having a heading when no one else has a heading, um, reviewers may say, well, they haven't kept up with the PAPPG. But again, in the context of MRI, um, they're not really judging you personally the way that they might in an individual investigator-initiated research project. Okay, that's helpful. So when and if it will when um, NSF reissues this, because I believe this particular solicitation, um, I believe it came out in 2018. Um, so when so when that is reissued, we may see that, you know, taken out of that, you know, language um, in accordance with the new PAPPG. But 
what you're highlighting here is the specific solicitation. And I think this is a rule that holds true across all programs. The specific solicitation trumps the PAPPG um, unless it specifically references following the PAPPG, correct? Correct. In every case. Okay. Yes. In every case. Okay. Just wanted to highlight that for those who are going to argue uh, with us later on. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so just a couple more questions here uh, before I let you go, Brian, because I know uh, you have a vacation coming up and we want to let you get to that as soon as possible. Um, but let's talk um, a little bit about um, something that came up as part of the uh, conversation. And I think it merits um, addressing again. Um, so let's talk about the case where somebody or an institution had a previous MRI um, and they did not meet every deliverable or, you know, they performed not as well as they anticipated uh, during the lifespan of that uh, NSF MRI. And now they're looking to resubmit. How does that reflect on them? Yeah, that's, um, that's a tough question because it, it happens quite often. Um, and so I guess that should give, um, anyone in that situation, uh, a little reassurance that they're not alone. Um, but it is one of those things that reviewers are looking at, uh, because in the section on prior NSF support, the solicitation is explicit. If there's an MRI award, it must be included in that section and described. And one of the things that, um, NSF is looking for in that is a description of research products that come out of that as a result of that. And so for an acquisition award, let's say someone acquired an instrument five years ago, they had five primary users and all these other um, minor users, educational uses and that kind of thing. Um, They don't have to be explicit about what all of those goals were in their description of of that prior support. No one's going back and rereading their previous proposal to see if um, they accomplished the the really super exciting research that was proposed, but they will see it's five years later and there's one proposal resulting from that activity. That's kind of disappointing. And, um, you know, they may say we supported six people through the use of this instrument. That's super disappointing. And so um, I would encourage people, keep great records, know how many people are using your equipment, know how many courses are incorporating um, this equipment in, in the lab, and how many undergraduate and graduate students are making use of this, how many community members are reaching out with requests, what's the percentage uptime and the percentage downtime, because those are the kinds of things that reviewers want to know. Um, uh, about your ability to implement uh, one of these awards. And so doing that, keeping that data, and then painting the best picture that you can of what the outcomes are is your best path forward. Don't dwell on the places where you didn't quite meet expectations. Instead, focus on really what was accomplished. Um, it's a little harder with development because um, either you have a functional, stable Uh, piece of equipment that met all of your uh, performance profile targets, or you don't. And so if you don't, um, you need to be able to explain why you didn't quite meet those expectations. What were the challenges involved? And how are you learning from those challenges in 
approaching this new project. And that's really where you have the opportunity to overcome any problems in the past. Um, I think I mentioned on the webinar, NSF recognizes that development projects here are high risk. Um, if no one has made this instrument before, there are certainly questions and the possibility is open that you might not be able to do it either. And so um, that's uh, an understanding. But being able to describe why you weren't able to reach those performance metrics, how you might address those particular challenges uh, moving forward is really the important piece. Uh, reviewers need to be reassured that it's not going to be a repeat of that prior failure, um, or at least you've shown how you turned failure into success in other ways and, mm -hmm. and how you're salvaging that effort. Okay. Very helpful. Um, I think that's all the time we have for today. I want to let you go, Brian. I know you've been talking about NSF MRI, MRI for two straight hours now. Um, so we will let you go. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Um, and we're going to be talking to you again next month on NSF STEM. So lots of NSF programs uh, going on right now. Um, Great. I'll see you so right here. Perfect. Um, quick reminder for, on a few of Hanover's other resources that are available uh, specifically to our clients. Um, if you are a Hanover client, check out the grants portal, which contains a lot of great information. It has um, information on our previous podcasts. It has our previous webinars in there. It has our uh, signups for alerts and other things. Um, so check that out. Uh, you can reach out to your contact for the Hanover partnership for more information on how to log into the portal. Um, Hanover's next webinar is going to be on January 27th, and that's going to be on NSF STEM, um, another program that is coming up with a deadline in February this year. Um, so tune in for that and uh, feel free to go ahead and send us questions uh, that you want answered either during that webinar or on the podcast ahead of time. You can send those questions to podcast at HanoverResearch.com with the subject line podcast question. You can also leave a voicemail at 202-499-6736. I also want to flag for those of you who may have uh, tuned into our Upward Bound podcast from a couple months back. Upward Bound is out. It has a January 30th deadline. Um, so if you are listening to this and you are preparing uh, to submit an Upward Bound proposal, go back and check out that podcast. We had uh, guest Susan Perry joining us there to talk about Upward Bound. There's some great tips and tricks there as well. That's it for us this time and for this year. I want to wish you all happy holidays and a happy new year, and we will see you in the new year. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.